Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. Make sure to check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. Last year, when we were at our annual congregational meeting, we were asked a question. The elders of the church were asked a question. What's the vision for the church? What's the direction of the church? What are we doing this next year, next couple years? Where are we going? And I kind of, I don't think I did it publicly, but I sort of shrugged my shoulders and said, not sure. Don't really know. And none of the other elders really had a clear clue of what we should be doing and where we should be going and what our direction should be. And that set us on a journey over the next 11 months until today where the elders of the chapel have been praying and searching and discussing and even a little debating and asking for some outside help and counsel and and praying some more and debating and talking and discussing some more, trying to figure out what we should be doing, what we should be aiming at, what direction we should be moving in as a church family. And... Really, what we're doing this morning is sharing with you the results of all that prayer and discussion and debating and working and seeking God to understand what we should be doing and where we should be going as a church family. And so that's that's what I'm wanting, what I'm desiring on behalf of the elder board to share with you today. Now, anytime you start talking about vision and direction, and when we try to answer this question, it's, you know, make this statement that we have there. It's time to see what God can do in our church family here in 2020. And I just, I have to say, this is a gift. It's like a dad joke, you know, 2020 vision. How about that? Okay, just kind of acknowledging that. And I, you know, that's a God, <laughs> I don't know if I can call it a God thing, but it's something like that, okay. But it's, it's important to see that we need to see accurately and clearly what God is doing in our midst. And you know, if we're going to do that, one of the questions that we have to remember, one of the issues that we have to remember and reflect on is what's our purpose as a church? And, and we already clearly understand that for, for decades. The purpose of Littlestown Chapel is this. Could you just read the, the words on the screen with me? For the glory of God, Littlestown Chapel exists to serve by showing the way. And not just telling the way, but demonstrating the way. And you're saying, well, what way are you talking about? Well, remember what Jesus said about himself. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So very simply, when we talk about showing the way, we are saying we want to help people meet Jesus Christ and follow him. That's certainly the children and student ministry and children's ministry, the teens, but it's also the people in our community. It's the adults in our growth groups, and it's also the neighbors on our, down the street from us. We want to help people meet Jesus Christ and become his, his followers. That's really what this church is all about. That's our heritage as a church. And so really the question then is, is what does showing the way look like in the future? You know, it's more than just maintaining a building or trying to get a large crowd to come on a Sunday or have this many services or do these many activities or have these programs. It's bigger than that. How are we showing the way in the future? How are we helping people meet Jesus Christ and begin following him? And to answer that question, we've actually had to ask and answer two other questions that are even deeper and more significant. Specifically, what should we be doing now to show the way? And what are we doing now to show the way? What should we be doing and what are we doing? to show the way, and we've wrestled with that. And we, we had a, a Saturday retreat where we spent all this time with two facilitators helping us just really answer that question. What are we doing? What should we be doing? What do we think God is leading us to do? We even brought all this information and shared it with a, with a focus group of, of 10 members of the church back in August. And we sat down with them and we shared this with them and we got their constructive feedback. It was incredibly helpful. And we continued to debate it and discuss it and tweak it and pray over it. And here we are trying to share it with you today. And so really, what's the, what's the vision of the chapel? What is it that we're aiming to do in the future? What direction are we going in? It's just simply this. 
We desire to reach 1% of our community with the Gospel. And you might be thinking, well, that seems kind of small, 1%. You know, 1% of a dollar is just a penny, so that doesn't seem like much. But, you know, if you stop and thought about this, you might not realize how large our community is, if you ever stop and thought about it. Right here where we're sitting, if you go 10 miles in any direction around us, if you go all the way to New Oxford and then go in the opposite direction all the way to Tawnytown, and if you go to the outskirts of Gettysburg and go all the way to Cadora State Park, you're covering an area that's about 314 square miles, just a little over that. It's a, if you add up all the zip codes in that area, you're talking about a population of 103,000 people. So 1% of that, you know, of the area, 10-mile area around us, we're, we're talking about 1,030 people, 1030. And why don't we maybe even push a little harder and put a little time frame on it and say, what if we tried to reach with the gospel, lead people to Christ 1030 by 2030 over the next decade? Try to see if we can share the gospel with enough people and pray with enough people and love enough people and encourage and serve enough people that people will come to faith in Christ and become members of God's forever family and join His kingdom. What if we set that as a, a goal? What if that's our vision to try to reach that many people? This little old church here in Littlestown, Littlestown Chapel. Set that as our vision to do that. You might be thinking right now, how in the world could we ever do that? A thousand people, that seems incredible. How could we aim for that? Well, I mean, that seems ridiculous. It really isn't. You know, if we pray hard and if we trust God, God's grace is sufficient. He's all-powerful. And He loves these people and knows these people's needs far better than we do. And He's able to use us. He's given us gifts. He's given us opportunities. He gives us boldness. God can make this happen if we're willing to be obedient and trust Him as, he, as we answer His call to come and work and walk with Him. So by the grace of God, these things can all happen. But we recognize that there's certain things that we should be doing as a church, certain things we should put in place in order to, like in a sense, short-term goals to help these things become a reality. Things that we can be responsible to do. And the thing is, is that the more we looked at the future, we had to go back and look at the past. And we had to see what we were doing and what we have done in order to look ahead at what we could do by the grace of God. And we began to realize that really it's continuing to do a lot of the things that we're already doing, but do them intentionally, do them vigorously, do them filled with the Holy Spirit, do them not just occasionally, but regularly, intentionally, deliberately, consistently, so that truly God can work through us and lead 10.30 to Jesus by 20.30. And so what are some of these things that we could be doing? Again, none of these are overly profound, but they are important parts of the vision that God has called us to. You know, one thing that we've got to do if we're going to reach 10.30 by 20.30, one thing we have to do is make sure that we have a good framework in place where people can feel welcomed and included when they come to the chapel. We need to make sure that everybody senses that they belong, that they are loved, that they're cared for, that they're encouraged, that they're shepherded, and that they're moved along and encouraged to go along and grow in their faith. And we can do more about that. And so one of the things that we're committed to doing is actually doubling the number of our growth groups that we have here over the next five years. These are five-year goals, short-term goals that we're going to embark on over the next five years. And so one of those goals is just simply this. We're going to double the number of our growth groups. And it's not just about having little home Bible studies and we want to have more of them. It's actually about raising up new leaders to lead growth groups and encouraging people to get involved. And if you're going to double the number of growth groups, you, you need to have more people involved to go to those growth groups. And so it's doing them better and doing them more often and doing them in more places so that people are loved and welcomed and included and cared for as well. Listen, here's one of the secrets of the Christian life. If you really want to grow spiritually, there's no maturity without community. And so every one of us needs to connect to grow. 
That's what we're called to do. That's part of our vision here at the chapel. Connect to grow. But if we're going to reach 1030 by 2030, it's, it's not just connecting with others and being part of a growth group or leading a growth group. It's bigger than that because there's things that we have to learn about who Christ is and his plan for our lives to understand the teaching of scripture, to understand his call upon our life. And so it's growing in Christ-likeness, but it's also growing in our skills and knowing how to share Christ with others, how to pray, how to study the scriptures, how to grow stronger, how to help others grow stronger in Christ as well. And so it's working at being intentional about making disciples, not just saying, oh, they'll happen by accident or they'll just happen if they show up and listen to the preacher on Sunday or if I just sit in a growth group and just kind of listen and nod my head and try not to fall asleep when prayer happens at the end. But it's, it's recognizing that there, are, there is mentoring that we could do and classes that we could offer and seminars that we could hold and other ways for people to gain a knowledge and experience in the word of God and applying it to their lives and developing the skills to live a life that truly honors Christ and is a blessing in service to others. And so we're not just connecting to grow, but we want to grow all of us in order that we might serve. Because again, a mark of maturity is not just community, but a mark of maturity is service. I am giving away what God has given to me. And so we're... We have teams of people who are not only working to develop and expand the number of our growth groups, we have a team of people that are already working, figuring out a plan, a strategy, things that we could do, tasks that we could accomplish that would help us truly grow in order to serve. We have folks already working diligently and coming up with a framework, a plan, a structure for us to follow and build on this in order to truly equip disciples who then can serve Christ and make a difference in this community. You'll notice that connecting to grow and growing to serve are things that if you could use the analogy that Paul, the Apostle Paul does talking about the church, he says it's like the body of Christ. You know, Christ is the head and the rest of us are parts of the body. And in a sense, connecting to grow, doubling the number of our growth groups, and growing to serve, you know, growing in our maturity in Christ, that's, that's like working on your core muscles. You know, those sit-ups and crunches and push-ups and planks and stuff that you do to try to strengthen all that. And it hurts, and it's, but it's necessary to strengthen the core. A lot of times, the problems that we have with our backs and other problems that we have in our bodies, those problems, those aches and pains go away if we just strengthen the core. And if we concentrate and focus on strengthening our fellowship and strengthening our discipleship, we go stronger as a church. But we're not just strengthening the core. We want to move beyond that to actually giving out to folks outside the church family. It's beyond just the core, it's reaching out in the community and having that flexibility as well. And so, we also recognize to, to reach 1030 by 2030, we have to become consistent in serving the community. This fellowship that we have and this discipleship that we're growing in, it's not just about us Hey, look how mature I am in Jesus. Hey, I, I'm loved and I love others and I've got this nice little church family. It's about reaching out beyond that and serving consistently, not just occasionally, but consistently in the community. That is why we're volunteering at the Fireman's Carnival in August. That's why we already have plans in the works, believe it or not. We're having an Easter egg hunt in Littlestown this year. We're doing it for families in our community. We're going to be working with other folks in the community as well, serving alongside of them. We're serving, we're blessing, we're helping, we're looking for ways to lift burdens and encourage folks in our, our community by serving, by helping. We're trying to do good works to build goodwill. And we're doing these good works and building goodwill for the purpose that one day, if God opens the door and he gives us the boldness, we'll be able to share good news. We're doing these good works and serving in the community, not to earn salvation, but to build friendships as a platform, as a bridge to be able to share the gospel. Not treating people as a project, but treating them as our neighbors that we love for Christ's sake. And we're praying for and looking for opportunities to make Christ known to those who don't know. You know, you think about it. The, 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 the 103,000 people that live 
within 10 miles of the church? Think about how many of them. When you're driving from Gettysburg to Cadoras, when you're driving from Tawnytown to New Oxford, and you're passing all these homes and subdivisions and people, as we pass all these people, so many of them don't know Christ. And I know that there are a lot of good Bible-preaching, gospel-preaching churches in our community, but there's so many folks who don't know Christ. They don't know about the love of God. They don't know how to have forgiveness and how to have their shame taken away. They don't know where to find purpose in life. They don't know how they could be sure that they have eternal life when they die. They don't know that, but they can find it if they meet Christ. And we're serving, not just to make our community a better place, not just to be nice to our neighbors, but we're sharing the gospel, we're serving to share the gospel so people can meet the greatest neighbor, Jesus, and find new life in him. That's showing the way, isn't it? That's what it's all about. And so we're seeking to serve consistently in the community as a platform, as a pathway to share the gospel. We're looking to do that more intentionally. Now, some of you have heard rumblings about this vision. You've asked me a couple questions. Pastor, I heard this rumor. I heard this. I wonder what's going on. And that's all because of this fourth short-term goal as part of our vision. This is the most challenging aspect of our vision. This is the thing that, that really is probably going to shake a lot of us and say, how in the world will we ever do this? And it's this. If we're going to reach 1030 by 2030, we intend over the next five years to plant a daughter church. There are communities within 10 miles of the chapel that do not have a Bible-preaching church, a gospel, Christ-honoring, Christ-exalting church. There's no witness in their neighborhoods and community. And we intend to send people out of this church like a missionary agency, like missionaries. We are a mission church. And we intend to send them out with full support, full blessing, full prayer, full encouragement, us working alongside of them and plant a daughter church in another community. And you might say, oh, that's, that's shocking. I've never th thought of something like that. And yet, if you were to go back in time 50 years and talk to Ken Henry, the founder of Littlestown Chapel Outreach for Christ, and you would talk to the first people that were members of that church, they would say, oh, it's all about planting other churches and starting other congregations and other places. That's what we're an outreach, of Christ, uh, for, outreach for Christ. That's what it's all about. Is starting congregations in other places and helping these churches grow and begin. And so, yes, it's scary. Yes, it's intimidating. Yes, we don't have it all worked out, but there's already a team of people that are developing plans and recruiting folks to begin doing this. And we're prayerfully looking and exploring where God would have us go in order to plant another church over the next five years. And this is what we need to do to reach 1030 by 2030, to be able to do this. You say, it sounds like you're splitting the church. No, it's not. It's giving birth. It's, it's starting something new. And there are always risks with that. There's always pain with that. It's always hard to do that. But it's worth it. It's worth it. And I truly believe, and the other elders believe as well, that God is calling us to do this, and together we can do this for His glory. And so there you have it. Here it is. This is our, our immediate vision that we have right now. We are going to connect to grow in order to grow to serve so we can serve to share, and we're sharing the gospel so we can plant another congregation. And it's easy to look at this and say it's kind of a linear thing. Oh, we plant another church. We're done. And it's not that because it's something that actually is better represented like a cycle that we keep coming back around and keep coming back around and keep coming back around because if you're going to reach, basically, you're going to take this congregation and multiply it four times to have a thousand people, that's going to take not just one church, but other churches, churches that plant churches. It'll take that too. And that's what we want to give our lives and our time and our efforts to do as well. Now, I am really grateful that I get to work with people who are extremely creative. And I want you to watch this video that Pastor Josh and Brady Mann put together.
sure that you have a lot of questions and you absolutely wonder how in the world this could ever take place and what's your part in it. And I just want you to know that there's a couple things to help us all with that. One is over the next several weeks, we're going to take each one of those four goals and expand them during a Sunday morning message and just talk about what God is doing and what He could do through us. And we'll be looking at Scripture. We're actually going to look at the life of Peter. We'll be doing that in just a moment. But looking at the life of Peter and how he learned that he really could trust God and see God work through his life through many challenging situations as well. I want you to understand also that we're taking this extremely seriously. We're not just mentioning it and saying, ah, oh, it's a great idea. Maybe it'll happen if we just let, let it, you know, it'll just happen by accident. And it's not. We already have folks that are working on all four of the goals to try to see them become a reality. They're planning, they're praying, they're working together. This week, a group that's involved in, in planning service projects and opportunities in our community, they're meeting on Tuesday night to begin discussing and planning and praying about how can we reach out in our community. Maybe you want to be here and be part of that. Come at 6.30 tonight, uh, on Tuesday night, okay? So that's something you could be doing. Something else that I think will help us, and I'd like to ask if we, these could be passed out right now as well, those that are responsible to do that. Just make sure every person gets one of these. This is a, a card that kind of functions as a, as a summary card. It also is a reminder for us to pray. And I'd like everyone, every person here to take one. But if you just would look at this and hold on to it as well, uh, you can reference it. It summarizes everything that we've said so that you can be aware of, of what's going on. And it can be a, a, a prayer card that will help you with this as well. Okay, it's, it's very important for you and I to see that and understand that also. While they're passing those cards out, I want to tell you a story. And this story is important because if we've just been talking about the what of the vision, I think it's important that we understand the why of the vision. Like why this? Why 1030 by 2030? Why are we focusing on trying to win people who do not yet know Christ to Christ so that they can experience new life in Him? I thought the video that Josh and Brady put together said that really well. It's helping people find Christ, but in the process of finding Christ, they find new life. They find His peace. They find His forgiveness. They find community and connection. They find life that really matters and life that really satisfies when they find Christ. And that's why it's worth being involved in that. Back in 1983, in February, there was a 605-foot cargo ship by the name of, of the Marine Electric. Marine, the Marine Electric, SS Marine Electric, was a bulk, bulk carrier vessel that left Newport News, Virginia, bound for Somerset, Massachusetts, and in its hold it was carrying almost 25,000 tons of granulated coal. Okay, this would be coal that would be used at like power plants and such. And so this giant ship, and you can just imagine this, as you look at the ship, you notice the, the covers on top of the deck there. They would open those covers and they just would pour the coal right into the bottom of the ship. And so it's like this big floating dump truck, so to speak, as it's going up. And it would sail only about 30 miles offshore and it would just follow the coastline and eventually after many days it would find its way in Somerset, Massachusetts where it would discharge its cargo. The trouble is, the Marine Electric left Newport News, and as it was crossing the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay, it encountered a terrible storm, a nor'easter. It generated 25-foot waves. It generated uh, all kinds of winds, heavy winds, 55-mile-an-hour wind gusts. Dawn and I were newlyweds living in Hagerstown at that time. It was our first winter together, and it, th that storm created such a tremendous snowfall. We've got a picture of Dawn standing by, pregnant Dawn standing beside one of our cars, and there's two feet of snow on top. And that was generated by this storm. It was right before Valentine's Day. And as this cargo bulk carrier vessel was turning its way through the ocean, it hit this terrible storm, and the ship was not seaworthy. It had been inspected, but Actually, people had lied on the inspection forms. There were holes in the covers on the deck. 
the metal had corroded and the waves and the water began leaking into the cargo hold and soon the hold of the ship was filled with water and it capsized and its crew of 34 men were thrown into the water and the water was 39 degrees. Now right before the ship, the marine electric capsized, the captain did radio a distress call to the Coast Guard and the Coast Guard dispatched a rescue helicopter from Elizabeth City, North Carolina. It flew quickly to the position where the ship had radioed from and they found the survivors, the victims, uh, thrown off the ship that were floating in the water around the, the hull of the sinking ship. And the crew began to lower the rescue baskets on a, a cable off a hoist and they lowered it down to the, the nearest man to them. And, and they actually lowered the basket down so that it landed right on top of the, the guy floating there in the water. And they, they bumped him, they, they prodded him with it, they jiggled the basket, they did all this stuff and the man did nothing. He was alive, they could see him move but the cold had overwhelmed him so much, the hypothermia had set in that he could not even reach up and grab onto the basket. He couldn't crawl into the basket and be lifted to safety. And after trying for several minutes to get this man into the basket, regrettably, the crew made the fateful decision to move on to the next victim in the water. And they lowered the basket right on top of the man and they, they prodded him and they bumped him and the same thing happened. He couldn't grab the basket. He couldn't climb into the basket. And they had to move on to the next victim. And the same thing happened to the next victim, the next victim. They even called a second helicopter to come in and try to rescue the men. And after working all day to try to get those 34 crewmen out of the water, they were able to rescue only three. 34, 31 of the men died. It was one of the worst commercial maritime disasters in American history. Well, after the sinking of the marine electric, electric and 31 souls perishing at sea, there were all kinds of investigations and inquiries, and there was even a congressional hearing. And as the members of the board that had done the research and the inquiry and different officials from the Coast Guard and the company that owned the ship as they were sitting there in front of the, the congressmen and women, they were grilled and questioned. And out of that hearing, Congress directed the United States Coast Guard to begin their rescue swimmer program. You see, one of the key findings of this disaster and the research afterwards was just simply this. If somebody had been in the water with those men who had the strength and had the ability, those men, all 31 of them, could have been saved if somebody had been there to help them get into the basket. If somebody would have been able to swim toward them and help them get aboard, they would do that. And so the Coast Guard formed the, the Aviation Survival Technician Training School, the A School in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. And, and those aviation survival technicians are properly known as rescue swimmers. There was a movie even by Kevin Costner and Ashton Kushner several years ago about that, The Guardian, I think. And the point is, is that here are men and women who have trained, who can endure all kinds of difficult, adverse circumstances, whatever the weather, no matter how high the seas, how bad the waves, how strong the wind, how dangerous the conditions, nighttime, daytime, whatever it is, they can jump out of the helicopter, they're trained as EMTs, they can come upon the scene and they can rescue the people. The Coast Guard learned in this experience that you can't just drop a basket and expect people to climb in. They might be too cold, too sick too frightened to get in. But if somebody would go to them, if somebody would swim to them, if somebody would just help them, they could be rescued. The motto of the rescue swimmers is simply this. So others may live. And I think that's a motto that we can adopt here at the chapel. 
when we think about trying to reach 1030 by 2030, when we think about you know, connecting to grow and growing to uh, serve and serving to share and sharing to plant as we're trying to reach our community with the gospel, growing stronger and healthy and more connected ourselves in the process, but then reaching our community with the gospel. We are doing this and it's like being rescue swimmers. It's like understanding that the world that we live in has a way of numbing people so that they can't hear God. They can't see His grace and His truth. They can't see Jesus, the God of this world. The devil himself even blinds the people around us. But the conditions of this world, so many distractions, so much discouragement, so much anxiety and worry, so many other things that keep people from feeling what God is doing and drawing them to Himself. Somebody needs to jump in the water with them. Somebody needs to help them be rescued by Jesus. Somebody needs to go and tell. Somebody needs to go and pray. Somebody needs to go and love. Somebody needs to go and listen. Somebody needs to go and serve. Somebody needs to go be with them and help them meet Jesus. And that's what you and I are called to do so that others may live. So in the days to come, the elders, I am going to be asking you, will you pray for this? Will you volunteer and serve? Will you share your faith? Will you even give and invest in this so others may live? Will you do this so others may live? Will you do this so that others may live so that 1030 can find Christ by 2030? Will you do that? Will you do these things so others may live, so that a church and churches might be started, so that others may live? Are you willing to do this? Will you take the risk and will you get involved in this way? Now we've heard the what and the why, but I think the big question we're all wrestling with is the how. How in the world can this happen? How can I be part of this? I, I feel like I'm drowning myself. I've got my own hurts and habits and hang-ups that keep me back. I, I don't know what to do. I don't feel like I'm strong enough. I don't even know enough people that don't know Christ. How could God possibly use me? And I'm thankful because there was an experience in Peter's life where he was able to get involved and God used him in a mighty way and he learned a powerful lesson about strong faith in the process. So I want to invite you to take your Bible, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. <coughs> Excuse me. Matthew chapter 14, starting at verse 22. This is on page 820. Page 820. Now listen to God's word. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? And when they had got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is God's word. 
This is such a remarkable story. You can also read about it in Mark chapter six and John chapter six. But what's incredible about Matthew's account of Jesus walking on top of the water, walking out in the sea to the disciples in the boat, is that Matthew's the only one that includes the account of Peter climbing out of the boat and walking on the water also. That's absolutely an amazing thing. And as I studied this passage and have wrestled with it, I'm thinking, well, you know, the first part of the story of Jesus walking on the water and the terrible storm and all of this, you know, that's a, that's a very powerful lesson on Jesus being the Son of God, that He's Almighty God. He's doing the kind of things that Yahweh Himself does. In fact, Job, in Job chapter 9, says it's God who treads upon the water. And so as the earliest followers of Jesus who knew their Hebrew Bible, as they would be reading this and they're seeing Jesus walking on the water, they're thinking, hmm, He's Yahweh. He's God in the flesh. Look at him walking on top of the waters, no matter how the storm is. Now, the Sea of Galilee is an inland lake. It's a large lake in northern Israel, and it's surrounded by mountains, and storms frequently occur on this lake as the, the hot desert air comes over the mountain and meets the cool air over top the lake. All kinds of storms are generated as well. Jesus has just fed the 5,000 people on the mountainside, and as he has made his disciples get into the boat. He tells them, I want you to start rowing across to the other side and I'll meet you there. I'll walk and meet you there. I need some alone time. Jesus dismisses the crowd that has eaten the bread and the fish with him as well. Himself, he himself then climbs higher up into the mountain and he spends time in prayer. In fact, he prays. And if you can just imagine the people leaving and the disciples leaving before sunset, maybe six o'clock or so, Jesus has been up in the mountain now for many hours. It's past midnight. And he's been praying and he's been seeking God's will and he's been communing with his father and casting himself upon his father's care and seeking direction. And that's what he's been doing in prayer. Jesus was a man of prayer. Meanwhile, the disciples are now many miles from shore. They're a long way from shore. And they're probably a good two or three miles out toward the middle of the lake because they've been sailing and rowing at least six hours, seven hours. It's probably even later. In fact, when it says that in the fourth watch of the night, they saw Jesus walking on the water, the fourth watch of the night was between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So the disciples have been rowing, they, they have been sailing, they've been doing all this, and they've been going through the storm a good eight or nine hours by now. And you can just imagine how exhausted, how tired, and how weary they were. And they felt like they weren't making any headway because the wind was blowing toward them and they're sailing in that direction. And there they are straining against the oars and they're just exhausted and thinking, what was on Jesus's mind when he sent us out here? I wish he was here now. Jesus comes down the mountain and it says that he begins walking on the water doing what only God could do, doing what only the Creator could do. The, the, the wind is no problem for Jesus. The waves are no problem for Jesus. He begins walking across the water. And you're probably saying, this, this story is crazy. I, I, I don't believe that, that someone with the mass and, uh, of Jesus could be held up on top of the surface of the water and actually tread upon it and walk upon it. That way, I don't, okay, well then you have a, a problem with miracles and that's another issue. But if there's a God who can do anything, anytime, any place, and do anything, then certainly it's possible for Jesus to walk on the water. He did so many other miraculous things, ultimately culminating in his resurrection from the dead. So this is not an impossibility. Granted, it's not something that's easily duplicated, but it is something that is possible if there's a God who can do anything, anywhere, anytime, any place. He's able to do that. As Jesus is striding across the waves and as he's coming closer and closer, the disciples begin to see that there's a form coming toward them and they freak out. They're terrified. They think it's a ghost. They actually think, in a technical sense, they think it's actually an evil spirit trying to deceive them. They're imagining this. They're seeing this and they're frightened and terrified by all this. And they scream out in fear, it's a ghost! You know, it's bad enough that we're about to drown in this boat. It's bad enough that we're stuck out here in, this, in the storm. It's bad enough I forgot to bring my Dramamine, but here I am. 
Here we are, and there's a ghost now coming to get me, to get us. And they're terrified. As Jesus gets closer, look what he says. This is what he says to all of his followers when they're afraid. You see, the disciples are out there in the boat, in the storm, in the will of God. They're doing exactly what Jesus has commanded them to do. They've been obedient. They're trusting him. But they're on the verge of drowning. Their ship is almost ready to sink. And they're terrified because now a ghost is coming to get them. And Jesus says, take heart. It is I. Don't be afraid. See the three things he says there? Take heart, literally. Have courage. Don't be frightened. Don't let your anxiety stop you. Get some courage. Why should you have courage? It's me. Here I am. It's I. This is the same phrase in the original language where in John's gospel, Jesus says, I am the vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread of life. That little phrase, I am, it's a way that Yahweh, the God of Israel, revealed himself to Moses on Mount Sinai in the burning bush. I am that I am. The all-sufficient, totally independent God. I am. And Jesus is saying in this moment, here I am, I am here. He's not only doing the things that Yahweh does, he's claiming the name of Yahweh. He's saying, I'm God. Look at me walking on the water. I'm coming to you and you don't need to be afraid because I'm with you. I'm coming for you. Stop fearing. Now he doesn't turn the storm off right away. He doesn't make the water calm. He doesn't build a pontoon bridge. He doesn't do all the things that you and I would want him to do or the disciples would want him to do in order to make us feel better about trusting and relying on him. I'll follow you, Lord, if it's easy. I'll follow you if you'd provide everything. I'll follow you if it's comfortable. I'll do your will if if you just make it easy for us to do it. The storm is still raging. The wind is still howling. The waves are still splashing. The lightning's still cracking. And the boat is still on the verge of sinking. It is I. That's the big difference. Here I am. Take courage. Stop being afraid. I'm with you. And I'm the God who controls all of this. I made all of it, and I control all of it. See, I can even walk on it. Now, Mark's gospel and John's gospel in the story right there. Jesus gets in the boat and they immediately get to the other side. The storm stops and everybody's astounded. And it's a great story. I mean, that story by itself is pretty exciting, I'd say. It'd make a great movie. But Matthew takes it a step further because he understands, he wants his readers, I truly believe this, Matthew wants his readers to move beyond just seeing how great and glorious Jesus is to how do you live in light of that? What do you do when you know that Jesus is the I am? That He is the one who controls nature? That He is the one who's in charge of everything? That He's the one that we must obey and follow? What do you do in light of that when that's the God you're following and serving? What you do is you trust Him and you obey Him. You rely on Him and you do what He says. That's what we do when we have a God, a Savior who is that glorious, that powerful, when we have a Savior who is God in human flesh. And that's what's going on here with Peter. I just think this is amazing. What was Peter thinking? Was he drunk? (laughs) Was he smoking something? Was he just crazy? Was he just exhausted and out of his mind that he would say, Jesus, if that's really you, tell me to come to you? What was he thinking? I'm not exactly sure. But let's remember a couple things. Jesus has already sent the 12 disciples out on a preaching mission, two by two, remember? 
And they not only had the mission to preach the good news about Jesus the Messiah had come, but they were to heal the sick. They were to cast out demons. They were to raise the dead. They were to do all these things in the name of Jesus. And the record says in Scripture that they did it. So Peter had performed miracles. Mighty, powerful miracles. Jesus-like miracles. Peter had already done those things. And I can't help but think that Peter is understanding in this moment that if Jesus, the Lord of the universe, is in control of the weather and in control of the water and control of the storm, if Jesus can walk on the water, then maybe we, his followers, can walk on the water as well. Lord, he's not going to presume... So he asked permission, Lord, if it really is you, command me to come to you on the water. Tell me to get out of this boat, and I will. And you know what Jesus does? Now, if I were Jesus, I would have said, what, are you crazy? (laughs) I'm the only one that can walk on water around here, not you. Stay in the boat. (laughs) Don't be silly. Put your seatbelt on. Get your life vest. What are you, crazy Peter? No. Jesus says, come. Peter, climb over the side of the boat and step down onto the water and come. Peter, come. And Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and came to Jesus. Peter was not doing anything wrong. He was doing something right. He took his obedience even a step further. His faith got him out of that boat. His faith got him on the water. His faith got him taking those first steps as he walked toward Jesus. Peter had a a vision in his mind of what he could do. Not only what he could do, but probably what all the other disciples, the other 11 guys in the boat, they could do it too. They all could have jumped out of the boat and walked to Jesus. But Peter's the one who has the vision and has it in his mind's eye. This is what I need to do. He climbs out of the boat and he comes to Jesus. But then notice what happens in verse 30. 30. But when he saw the wind, which is another way of saying when he saw the storm. The wind was part of the storm, obviously, but the waves, the cloud, the splash, the white caps, the spray, all the stuff going on, the turbulence of the waves, the boat shaking, rocking up and down. When Peter sees all this, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. A lot of us, we've never walked on the water ourselves. We've never climbed out of the boat ourselves, but we ridicule Peter. (laughs) Where was his faith? If he had just kept his eyes on Jesus, if he could have just looked at Jesus instead of his storm, he wouldn't be sinking. And we've never done that ourselves, get out of the boat. We've never stepped out on the water ourselves. Peter stands in place of me and you, and it's a reminder that sometimes we have a faith that is so excited and so enthusiastic and so committed that it's enough to get us over the railing of the boat and get us down on the water and get us to take those first steps. It's an enthusiasm. It's an excitement. God, you're so good. You're so real. I really believe you. I really trust you. You're so great. Let's go. I'll take that hill for you. I'll step over this side of the boat, and I'll take those steps toward you. But that enthusiastic faith wasn't enough to keep Peter going because you need to have a focused faith. And Peter, it says, began to see the storm. And he began to think, what the heck was I thinking? I can't walk on water. Every time I've ever been in water, I sink. Remember that time I almost drowned? Remember that time that, that I fell in off the dock? Remember when, they, when I got thrown overboard when we were out fishing? I, every, I can't, what am I thinking? I can't walk on the water. Even though he just saw Jesus do it. Even though he's already taken steps to do it. Instead of focusing on Christ and remembering Christ's ability to control the winds and the wave, the storm... Peter focuses on himself and his circumstances and he begins to sink. A faith that really accomplishes visions. 
A faith that answers God's call and fulfills God's call. A faith that God uses to do his will and bring glory to his name is a faith that's not only enthusiastic, yes, Lord, here I am, I'm willing to do it, but it's also a faith that's focused. I'm going to keep my eyes on you, Lord. And I'm going to keep reminding myself and remembering who you are and your power and your glory and your authority and the work you finished. I'm going to focus on all of that. And I'm going to keep taking my steps, even though everything inside of me tells me, what are you, crazy? You can't do this. I can't, but God can. I can't, but Jesus can. And I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength whatever the storm is. Peter does have enough faith to cry out to Jesus and ask Him to save him. And so he says, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out His hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Notice, Jesus does not rebuke Peter and say, you had no faith. No, the people of Nazareth had no faith and Jesus could not do any of his mighty miracles there in his hometown because the people there did not trust him. The people there did not believe him. They had no faith. But Peter does have faith. He did climb over the edge of the boat. He did walk on the water. He did come toward Jesus. And yes, his faith faltered. Yes, he began to look around at his circumstances and he began to sink because it wasn't focused. His faith was not focused. But he did have a little faith. Do you have a little faith? It's not that faith is a commodity that I need to get more of as much as I just need it focused on Jesus. I need to keep focusing on Him, not just for a little while, not just when I get started, but out there in the middle I need to focus on Him. Not just at the end of my life, but during this muddled middle that I'm going through. I need to keep focusing on who Jesus is and what He's done. And that will bolster and strengthen your faith. And God will work through that faith to bring glory to His name. In fact, that's exactly what happens. Notice at the end of the story here. And when they got into the boat, you can just imagine at that moment, Peter and Jesus finished their walk on the water. It doesn't say that Jesus carried him. It just says that he held his hand, held his arm, and they got into the boat. And it says that when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And the thing that's interesting in this case, there's another time when the disciples are in their boat and the boat is in a storm and the storm is going to sink and the ship is going to sink and Jesus is in the boat with them, but he's taking a nap. And they wake him up and Jesus stands up and says, peace, be still. And the storm stops. In this case, Peter and Jesus climb into the boat and as soon as they step into the boat, it's almost as if the wind has total respect for Jesus and it just stops. Jesus doesn't even need to say a thing. Doesn't command it to be silent. It's like the wind says, we we see our Lord. We know our Master. The wind ceases and the storm stops. And it becomes calm. When you and I think about all the challenging things that we face in our lives, maybe you're in recovery and you're working on trying to overcome some habit or addiction or some kind of hurt and trauma in your past and there's the hard work of forgiveness and the hard work of getting counseling and the hard work of saying no to those habitual things that hold you down. And you're just saying, I don't know that I can really do this. Jesus is wanting you to know that he is there and he is with you and you can walk with him on the water of your addiction, the water of your storm. Wherever it is that you're walking with him, he will help you. And you may be thinking, but you know, my kids, they just need so much help, and I don't know that I can be the kind of dad or mom that they need to disciple them. And that storm, that water of how in the world am I ever going to raise these kids to really follow Christ? And Jesus is saying, don't be afraid. I'm with you. Trust me. Let's take the steps on this water because I'm the Lord of this when it comes to being a parent. And you're saying, I've got friends that I need to lead to Christ and I want them to meet Jesus, but I don't know. The storm is so bad. It's so confusing. It's so blinding. I don't know how anybody will ever come to Christ through me or through our church. 
And Jesus would say, take courage, don't be afraid, I'm here, it's me. And I'll walk on the water with you. Together we'll walk on this water. And we'll bring this vision about. And we'll bring glory to my name. And the story concludes with those that are on the boat worshiping Jesus and they say for the very first time, these human beings saying, truly, you are the Son of God. When Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, the Father, the voice from heaven, had already said that. But here, Peter and James and John and even Judas Iscariot recognized that Jesus, Lord of the storm, Lord of the waves, Lord of the wind, the Lord over all nature, the Lord over you and me, the Lord of our vision, that he can walk on the water. He's in full control. He works his will for his glory. And we can have courage and trust him. And when we see him work, the result is truly you are the son of God. And there's worship. That's what this is all about. 1030 by 2030 is not just about, hey, look at us. We're a church that really did something. It's not that. It's about Jesus getting praised. Hey, we planted another church. It's not about that. It's about Jesus getting praised. Look at all our growth groups, all the people going to growth. Look at us. No, it's about Jesus being praised. Look at all the classes we have. It's about Jesus being praised. Look at all the serving we're doing. Look at all the good works we do in our community. It's about Jesus being praised and being worshiped. Come magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and He heard me. And He delivered me from all my fears. Right now the big enemy that threatens our vision is fear. And those instructors down at aviation, survival, technician school, the rescue swimmer school, They say over and over and over to their trainees, if you panic, they die. If you and I allow our fear to stop us, our worries and anxieties to stop us, people will not hear the gospel. I understand the sovereignty of God and His will and somebody else maybe will witness to them. I understand that. But people will not hear from us unless God gives us the courage to overcome the fears we have. So this is our vision, and this is why we're doing it, and this is how we're doing it, by faith in Christ and relying on Him. And I thank you so much for the privilege of sharing this with you. We're going to unpack this even more in days ahead. So now we know. And if you have any questions, you're welcome to ask any of the elders. I'll be happy to talk with you also. At our congregational meeting, On February 9th, we certainly anticipate we'll have a lot of discussion about the vision that we've presented, and we hope that you'll be part of that. Sign up for that lunch and that uh, meeting as well so that you can be part of the discussion also that day. I'm going to go ahead and uh, dismiss you with prayer. Let's stand. All right. Okay. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I give thanks to you for your loving kindness and your mercy to us. And I thank you that you stepped out on the water and came to us. There we were in a storm of life, a storm of sin and shame, our lostness and confusion. We were helpless and we were hopeless. But you came to us treading on the water to rescue us. And I thank you for that. And I thank you that by dying on the cross, Jesus, you conquered sin and death and the devil. By rising from the dead, you're our victorious Lord and King. And I thank you that we can trust you and we can rely on you. And I'm asking and praying that you would help us to not let our fear and panic and our anxieties and worries stop us from trusting you because you are here. Help our faith be focused on you and what you've done. We ask 
and pray all these things in the name of Jesus. May you make these things happen so that many, many, many will worship you and give glory to your name. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.